0: Interesting fact. The most loved, the most respected. Millions of books have been written about it. It's brought down wicked empires and transformed civilizations. It confounds the proud and humbles the contrite. It flips the switch onto the darkest recesses of our innermost thoughts and secrets and provides the foundational bedrock for understanding reality. It's on your phone, it's on your tablet, on your nightstand. I'm speaking, of course, of the Bible, but there's another list we need to acknowledge. It's also the most misquoted, the most taken out of context, the most misunderstood, the most divisive, the most banned, the most hated, the most disrespected. Millions of books and articles have been written trying to discredit it. Nations and people have gone to war and committed unspeakable atrocities to stop its spread. It's vital to acknowledge how the Bible is received in order to keep from experiencing the consequences that come with mishandling the word of God. Consequences that come from from taking things out of context, from misunderstanding or misapplying or just plain missing deep spiritual absolutes because ultimately you will then miss out on the abundant life that Jesus promised and offers in John 10.10. As a minister and as a counselor, I cannot begin to stress this point enough. Even God fearing, God loving Christians frequently miss out on God's promised blessings because of a misapplication or mishandling of God's Word. Today, we begin a four week series where we're going to examine a selection of God's promises and use them as a backdrop for practicing how to rightly handle the Word of God in order to experience the blessings found in His Word and not miss something really important. But first, let's do an informal survey. How many of you would say that your life is pretty busy? Be honest, it's okay. How about very busy? And what about... Unreasonably, I'm drowning under the weight of it all, and I'm super stressed busy. (laughs) Only a few hands. Thank you, Alex. About 60% of American adults admit to sometimes feeling too busy to enjoy life. For parents with children under 18 in the home, that number jumps to 74%. About 48% of American adults admit to crying in the past week because of stress and busyness. And these numbers are significantly on the rise. But why is that? Not to be glib or dismissive, but shouldn't our lives be more stress-free? Consider all the advancements and innovations in technology and medicine we've enjoyed in the past century. All the machines that make life easier, quicker. We actually work less hours than our grandparents and great-grandparents did. We have more time for recreation, for, for leisure, for self-care. We travel more, take more vacations. We have far more things to entertain us, and in so many different ways. And yet the number of busy, stressed, and de- depressed people continues to rise. Why is that? And maybe more importantly, why is that true for so many Christians as well? Where's the abundant life Jesus promised? Using God's word, let's see if we can find what's missing. Our text today is from Matthew chapter 11. But we need some context real quick before we jump straight in. In the gospel of Matthew thus far, Jesus has been uh, ministering in the Galilee area. He's been performing, performing miracles. He's been healing the sick. He's been casting out demons and preaching the good news of God's kingdom. Though most places have rejected him as the Messiah. In verse 20 of chapter 11, Jesus responds like this. He says, then he began to denounce the cities where most of the mighty works had been done because they did not repent. He said, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. By the way, those were Jewish cities. Jewish cities that had the Old Testament promises, had an anticipation for the coming of the Messiah. And he says, woe to you for if the mighty works done in you had to be done in in Tyr and Sidon, those were Gentile cities by the way, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyr and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? Capernaum was kind of like Jesus' home base. Several of his disciples came from there and Jesus taught and performed miracles there and around there regularly. So he asked, will you be saved, Capernaum? Jesus says, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Whew, that's some heavy stuff. Okay, really quick tangent. One of my biggest grievances against our mainstream church culture is how wimpy we've made Jesus. Jesus with his long flowing hair and flowing beard, the, the Mary Poppins-esque persona we dress him up in, how he, has, he was so gentle and passively walking through the field with flowers and he was barefoot. What I see is a Jesus, who is kind and gentle and loving, but he's also king and knows it, and he's comfortable with it, he has complete divine authority and he knows how to use it, He orders illness and demons around like they are powerless puppets. And he has no problem dropping truth bombs because facts are more important than feelings. And the fact is, there is simply no excuse for the rebelliousness of our hearts. This is the intro context for our passage today. Kind of important. So beginning in verse 25 of Matthew 11, which is on page 905 in the blue Bible underneath your seat if you did not bring a Bible. We're going to start reading. Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. At that time, so just after that denouncing of stubborn hearts, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. light. Kind of a familiar passage, just that last part though, right? This this passage demands so much more attention than I can give it in a two-hour sermon. Just kidding. But I want us to pick on something really, really, really important, and it's our main idea for today. This passage tells us in no uncertain terms that God the Father graciously reveals himself through his Son. Jesus Christ, but only to the truly humble. We'll get more into what humble means in a little bit, but first we should ask what Jesus reveals about God in this passage. What promise does he reveal here? Well, the promise is stated twice. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus will give you Rest. That's the promise. The biblical concept and promise of rest is one of those super fun, exciting, thematic threads that is woven all through the Bible. So let's give it a little tug today and see what this actually means within the grand narrative of God's plan and why it's so incredibly important that we don't miss it. We begin naturally at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 2 verses 1 through 3. The six days of creation are complete, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. A right understanding of what the Bible teaches about rest has to begin with a right understanding of what happened on the seventh day. Did God get tired? Did he need a breather, need a recovery day? Short answer, no. Longer answer, absolutely no. Nothing can be added to or subtracted from God, which means his power has no bounds, no limits. Psalm 135, verses 6 through 7 says, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and in earth, in the season and all the deeps, he causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth, who makes the lightnings for the rain, who brings forth the wind from his treasuries. This also doesn't mean that God stopped working. The deist says that there is a God. But that this creator stopped being involved after creation and is off somewhere doing something else. But Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verses 29 and 30, are not two sparrows sold for a cent. And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Meaning God is still intimately involved, involved in working in and through his creation. Colossians 1.17 and Hebrews 1.3 tells us that all things hold together meaning every atom and every parts of an atom do their thing because of God. Then, of course, the promise in Romans 8:28 that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Imagine if God needed rest and took the day off. All of created reality would cease to exist because every atom, every subatomic particle, would fly off, quit functioning, become inert, without God's power and direct intervention. So if this rest in Genesis 2:2 is not what we weak sacks of puny flesh think of as rest, then what is it? To answer that question, we need to answer another one first. Why does God call it holy? Why did God bless the seventh day, the day of rest, above the other six? Were they not good enough? Well, no, Genesis one says that each day was good with the sixth day being very good, so that can't be it. But the seventh day is not only blessed but also devoted to God. That's what holy means. Sometimes we define holy as, as set apart for God, but really what it means is totally devoted to God. That is why God is holy. God isn't set apart for himself. God is totally devoted to himself, to the persons of the Trinity. The Father is devoted to the Son and the Spirit. The Spirit is devoted to the Son and the Father. Uh, I'm missing one, who did I miss? The Son is devoted to the Spirit and the Father. Thank you, Derek. That's what it means for God to be devoted. And that's a good thing, otherwise this would be a narcissistic God, right? If God wasn't expressed in three persons, the idea of being self-devoted would be kind of weird. But we believe in a God in three. So God is totally devoted to himself. And that's a good thing because if God was devoted to anything other than himself and his will, whatever that thing is would have power over him. Think about that for a second. I am married, I am faithful to my wife. But if a situation ever arises that forces me to choose between pleasing my wife or pleasing God, I'm choosing God because anything that has power over God in my life is actually an idol. So the seventh day is set aside as devoted to God. The act of creation came to a conclusion. On day eight, God didn't suddenly decide to make the duck-billed platypus just to confuse us. So in essence, we could argue that God rested from creating because the work was complete. What does this have to do with resting and holiness, though? Well, everything, actually. Let's skip forward in the narrative to Exodus, chapter 20. The Israelites have been rescued from bondage in Egypt. They're going through the desert, and Moses goes up on Mount Sinai to receive the law. We start with God declaring his identity, followed up by the first commandment, have no other gods. The second law expands upon the first by forbidding carved images, idolatrous idolatrous trinkets and symbols of anything in creation that could be used as an object of worship. The third is pretty short to the point, do not take God's name in vain. Then comes the fourth, let's read it. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So now we read almost the same words from Genesis 2, this time as a commandment for God's people to observe. The question we need to ask ourselves is, why this law? Work six days but not the seventh? It kind of seems arbitrary at first. But the Jews took this law very seriously. In Numbers, we read about a man who got caught collecting firewood on the Sabbath and he was stoned to death in front of the camp. Like any good law, this one took on a life of its own and was expanded and twisted by the bureaucrats governing Israel up to the time Jesus walked the world in the flesh. And the essence and the purpose of this law had become lost. We actually see this played out immediately after this uh, conversation in, John, in Matthew chapter 11, after Jesus invites us to take up his easy yoke. One verse later in Matthew 12 Verses 1 through 8, we learn that right after this, Jesus and the disciples are walking through a field. And the disciples are hungry. So they pluck the head off some of the grain as a snack. And the Pharisees are always watching to try to trip him up and to try to accuse him. See them do this on the Sabbath. And they say, look, your disciples are doing what it's not lawful to do on the Sabbath. They are working. We got them this time. So Jesus casually schools them with a legal history lesson. In verse 3, he says, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Huh. So this commandment, which according to Jesus in Matthew 5, 17 through 20, will never be abolished, has to mean something even the Pharisees didn't understand. If you're anything like me, you might have read the fourth commandment at some point and instantly brushed it off as inapplicable because we live under the new covenant, purchased for us by the blood of Jesus Christ, so we are no longer under the law. Can anyone relate to that? Don't be shy. Three honest people, sweet. It's funny how we don't do this with the other nine commandments, though. At least not so blatantly. Sure, maybe we use some mental gymnastics and say that going to church on Sunday takes the place of this Sabbath command. That's one justification. I don't know about you, but that kind of feels like we're still missing the point. What does reserving an entire day as devoted to the Lord have to do with the promise of rest Jesus offers in Matthew 11? Turn with me in your Bible to Mark chapter two, verses 23 through 28. Mark chapter two, where we read almost an exact account of the grain-plucking Sabbath story as Matthew chapter 12. Same event, same responses, but Mark includes a sentence that clarifies everything. In verse 27, Jesus tells the accusing Pharisees, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Let that sink in for a second. The fourth commandment, which began in Genesis 2, is for our benefit. Huh. Okay, well that means we need to start over. Okay, let's try this again. God completed the work of creation. His final piece was man and woman, sixth day. The only things in all of creation made in his image. Meant for a special, holy relationship with him. And that began on day seven. On day six, God finished the work of creation and entered into rest on day seven, a rest he chose to share with his most prized creation, humanity. The rest described in Genesis two is an invitation to experience the holy presence of God. And that's exactly what, what happened. Adam and Eve enjoyed the sinless perfect presence of God as he would join them in the garden of Eden communing with them without interference because sin had yet to be. Then everything changed and that relationship, that rest, was interrupted. The consequences of the fall of humanity meant the absence of that rest. Work, which existed before the fall, mind you, since Adam was placed in the garden to tend it, work became a chore. Eating came at the expense of dealing with thorns. Relational harmony between husband and wife became strife and and blaming, literally the opposite of restful. Childbearing and childrearing became excruciating and laborious. And ultimately, human existence was now marked by eventual decay and death. We see this rest offered again offered in the future in Moses' time to the nation of Israel. We see it promised and we see it taken away. The rebellious generation that left Egypt and complained the whole time, God removed the invitation to enter his promised land rest. So they wandered for 40 years, for 40 years until that entire generation died off. The next generation though, in Exodus 33:14, 14, God promises to Moses that they will have his presence, his rest with the people in the promised land. A promise restated through Joshua in Joshua 1 verse 12. God's special chosen people were called to be totally devoted to him, to be holy, and therefore experience the blessings and promises of God's presence. But like Adam and Eve, and all humanity since, the Israelites constantly forfeited God's rest in favor of their own idolatrous hearts as they pursued greed, false gods, and their own interests, which led them to experiencing God's judgment Through the exile, which we just went through, there's actually a passage in Scripture that sums this up way better than I could, and it's in Hebrews chapter three. We're going to read it. It's a big section of Scripture, so I'll encourage you to to turn there now and follow along. Hebrews chapter three, beginning in verse seven. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Talking about the Israelites. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if needed, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would never enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Again, he appoints a certain day, today. Saying that through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, for all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. There's something extremely powerful about reading scripture in its context. Those last couple verses of Hebrew, those were in chapter four, are very popular. They're on motivational posters, um, they are on coded t-shirts and whatnot, but there's a giant chunk of context we often leave out. And it's the power and the sufficiency of God's word, what God says about himself and what he is offering us. That offer that started in the the garden continued through, through Israel And it continues today. All of human history as recorded in the Bible is the longing to return to this rest. So Jesus, at just the right time, comes to earth as a human and says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus, as Lord of the Sabbath, is the only way to that rest, to God's presence. And God, in his infinite wisdom and grace, ties physical rest and soul rest together as long as we walk this earth. Why? Because God knows the dangers of letting exhaustion and busyness distract us away from practicing and experiencing God's presence here and now. Resting in his presence is the antidote for literally all of our soul problems. He also knows the human propensity for spreading ourselves too thin. We are weak, needy creatures, and to deny our need for rest is to set ourselves up for stress and all that accompanies it. Again, distracting us from the blessing of being in God's presence. Okay, so here's where cognitive theology meets practical theology. As believers, we know the presence of the Holy Spirit is in us. So we can never be outside of God's presence. We all agree on that? Need more hands? Okay, cool. But we also work, shop for groceries, cook dinner, clean house, play with the kids, and a million and one other things that come with living. All good things, but be honest, you're not cognizant of God's presence all the time. You get distracted, busy, rush to meet deadlines, have an argument with the spouse, yell at the kids. God's presence didn't leave, but you're certainly not experiencing it. That's why this command also requires sacrifice. Of the Ten Commandments, remembering the Sabbath is the only one that explicitly demands sacrifice. Do you know that? It means planning ahead and sacrificially offering God our devoted time as we bask in his presence, away from distractions, away from people and noise. Even Jesus practiced this spiritual necessity. As the gospels record, he would frequently slip away and be alone with the Father. If Jesus the God-man needed this, what's your excuse? We practice the eternal rest found in God's presence here and now to give us hope. Hope for the future, the eternal hope, to remind us of what our actual priorities ought to be, and to continue our sanctification journey towards holiness. That future hope is the hope we read about in Revelation 21 and 22, where followers of Jesus Christ will experience his presence, his rest. For all eternity. I don't know about you, but that kind of sounds important. But this also requires humility. Jesus offers rest to those who labor and are heavy laden, and of course, he's talking about sin. Accepting the rest Jesus offers requires the humility to acknowledge the weight of your sin and inability to do anything with it. It requires humility to acknowledge that Jesus's way is the only way taking his yoke, meaning submitting to him completely and willfully. Practicing that rest now means being humble enough to shut up and listen to what the Holy Spirit wants to reveal to you about you in those moments of quiet, in solitude, away from people. And for many people, myself included, this can be uncomfortable at the very least and absolutely terrifying at the worst. We don't want to hear what God has to say about us if we're struggling with sin. You might be asked to confront something you don't want to confront. But that's another burden you don't have to carry because Jesus is offering to take it off you and replace it with his rest, his joy, his peace, his contentment, and his presence. God the Father graciously reveals himself Through his son Jesus Christ, but only to the truly humble. Do you find yourself struggling to find that rest? Maybe you've never actually experienced it. Here's my challenge to you intentionally plan for a time of silence and solitude with God. Make a plan with your spouse and your kids to provide this time and space so you won't be interrupted. Go into it and just sit and listen and be okay with the silence. It's probably going to be uncomfortable. But keep doing this until it becomes a habit. Chances are he's going to tell you to slow down, do less, experience him more, and deal with certain issues you've been avoiding by covering it with busyness. Jesus said in Matthew 12 that God God desires mercy not sacrifice. He wants to pour out His mercy on you. So don't do this if it's nothing more than another spiritual box you need to check off. You'll just end up frustrated. Do this with an open heart, a humble heart, ready to hear from God and accept His promised rest. If you've been a church attendee for a while, but also find yourself struggling to live the rest Jesus offers, then you need to get connected. Join one of our small groups or table groups or rooted and find out more about what it means to experience God's presence and pursue that holiness. And if you've never experienced this rest but want to know more, I'll be in the back and would love to share more with you. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for your word that you have given us that illuminates, that makes clear, Lord, and I just pray that we would